Welcome to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio, your source for learning more about fly fishing in cold water, warm water, and salt water. Hello, I'm Roger Mays, your host for tonight's show. And on this broadcast, we'll be featuring Scott Sato, and he'll be answering your questions on Pacific Coast flies and fly fishing. This show will be 90 minutes in length, and we're broadcasting live over the Internet. If you'd like to ask Scott a question, just go to our homepage at askaboutflyfishing.com and use the Q&A text box to send us your question. We'll receive your question immediately, and we'll try to answer as many of them as possible on the show tonight. And while you're there, make sure to sign up to receive our announcements so you don't miss out on any of our future broadcasts. Just fill out the form on the right side of our homepage, and we'll let you know when the next live show will be. This broadcast is being recorded and will be available for playback on our website about 48 hours after the show ends. You can also find it on any of the podcast distribution sites like Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. So if you have to leave early, you can return to our website or any of the podcast platforms at your convenience and listen to the recording at any time. If you're out and about on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter, we'd sure appreciate it if you'd share our podcast. And when you do, use hashtag AskAboutFlyFishing and also hashtag FlyFishing. In fact, if you have a moment, do it now while you're listening to the show. We really appreciate it. The content of this broadcast is copyrighted and is the property of the Knowledge Group, Inc., doing business as Ask About Fly Fishing. When we return, we'll be talking with Scott Sadel about Pacific Coast flies and fly fishing. Whether you want to catch your first permit in Belize, tame a giant tarpon in the Florida Keys, or wrestle a mint bright Atlantic salmon in eastern Canada, Hills Fly Fishing International, a well-traveled booking team has the knowledge to make it happen. They consider trust to be the single most important aspect of their work. They only book locations that they know, meaning proven operations providing the right mix of great fishing, comfortable accommodation, and high integrity. Get in touch today to start planning your next fly fishing adventure. Visit flyfishinginternational.com or call them at 780-665-4943. Again, that's flyfishinginternational.com or call them at 780-665-4943. Before we introduce Scott, I'd like to let you know about the great prizes we have to give away. For our drawing tonight, we'll be giving away a one-year membership to Fly Fishers International and a one-year membership to Trout Unlimited. Now, if you haven't registered yet for the drawing, you can do so now. Just go to our homepage, askaboutflyfishing.com, and look for the link under Scott's section that says Register for our free drawing. Click on that link and fill out the form, and we'll announce the winners at the end of the show. We'll also be giving away a copy of Scott's latest book, Pacific Coast Flies and Fly Fishing courtesy of Stackpole Books. And to learn more about Stackpole, go to stackpolebooks.com, and you can see all the books that they publish there. Now, here's how you can win. You must be the first person to answer the question we ask at the end of the show. And the question will be about something that Scott and I talk about during the show. It could be two questions. It could be a two-part question. Submit your answer in that same form on the home page where you can ask questions during the show. But at that appropriate time, put your answer, your name, your location in there, and send it, and if you're the first person uh, to send in the correct answer, you'll win Scott's book, Pacific Coast Flies and Fly Fishing. Our guest tonight is Scott Sado, and Scott is a freelance writer who lives in Hood River, Oregon. His books include a memoir, Angling Baja, a novel, Cast from the Edge, two short story collections, Lost in Wyoming, which was finalist for the 2011 Oregon Book Award in Fiction, and Good News River, a collection of essays, and Good News River, a collection of essays, fly tales, lessons in fly fishing, 
like the real guys and his new book, Pacific Coast Flies and Fly Fishing. Over the past three decades, his work has appeared in all the important fly fishing magazines, and he's currently the angling editor for Gray Sporting Journal, and while also writing the At Device Fly Tying column for California Fly Fishing. Since building his first wooden boat a decade ago and sailing it from Astoria, Oregon to Lewiston, Idaho, Scott has also published extensively about boat building and boating adventures for small craft advisor and watercraft in the UK. He launched his fourth boat, Tamalita, a six-meter Luger, this past fall. And while his work for Grays takes him to destinations fly fishing worldwide, Scott treasures his time searching for wild fish throughout the West and along the shores of the Eastern Pacific. Well, Scott, welcome to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. Glad to be here. Yeah, glad to have you. Cold winter's night here in Colorado. I don't know how it is where you are, but <laughs> we're getting a big snowstorm right now. Um, so, we don't have snow. Uh, we don't have on. snow, but we have we have freezing weather, and uh, it's uh, keeping us indoors too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That time of year. Well, listen, we've got you just published this book, so um, got a lot of questions to ask you about the book and about the flies in the book and the fishing and so forth. And, you know, it's kind of an unusual book. It's, um, can you tell us about how the book came about, how it was, uh, what the concept was and how it was put together? Sure. For a while I've been doing, I was doing essays and putting them with a fly pattern, kind of like, traditional sort of cookbooks are even sometimes that way. There are a lot of narrative, but with a pattern. And that seemed to be a popular feature for the magazines. They really liked that. And so from that, I ended up getting hired full-time for California Fly Fisher. And it was the same sort of deal. I would have an essay about some aspect of fly fishing or fly design or materials or whatever, whatever, and put those patterns together and those essays. And the next thing I knew, I had sort of a long list of essays and patterns I had written about. And the whole idea was that there's never really been a comprehensive guide to the Pacific Coast. There's been trout books, steelhead books, saltwater books, but I'm sort of uniquely qualified to write about all of those. And so I thought it's time to have a book like this that has a collection of all those patterns in one under between two covers. Great. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you've got what? Oh, 60 says on the cover, 60 patterns in that book. That's quite, and a story about each one, which is really interesting. You know, of course, the Pacific Coast starts in Alaska and goes all the way to Terra del Fuego, South America. What sections did you cover in the book? I'm I'm going really in general, even though I do touch on Alaska, but really I'm talking about the Northwest down to the tip of Baja. Since okay. I didn't feel like I could write this in Spanish, I didn't think I was going to uh, <laughs> include the audience in Chile and and even yeah. Central America. Yeah, yeah. A lot of this, probably a lot of these flies work down there as well, I would think, because we've got a lot of the same kind of fish. And, um, Absolutely. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah, I mean, when we're talking about food for fish, it's um, pretty universal. But, um, well, good, yes. good. 
So you broke your book out, and, and I'm going to kind of follow the format of your book tonight, into trout flies and steelhead flies and saltwater flies. So what I thought we'd do is take a few questions from the audience, but also I've picked out, you know, several flies in each of those sections. And, you know, I'd like you to talk about those flies, you know, how you picked them for the book, who designed it, what materials you use, what you know, makes the fly work, and so on and so on. So so that's kind of the, the direction we're going to go here. And we'll cover, as you know, as many as we can tonight and see where it takes us. We did get a, a question before the show, and the question is, do you primarily match the hatch, or do you fish whatever works? What is an example of a Western fly pattern that closely matches a hatch, and in contrast, one that gets it done regardless of food sources and season? If possible, stick to patterns that are not streamers. So maybe you could select some or answer the question, maybe use some examples out of the book. Yeah, sure. Certainly when fish are rising to any particular bug, you know, that's kind of the ideal. And I would always want to be matching the hatch or, you know, what's going on, what are the fish feeding on. But we all know that we spend a lot of time fishing when that's not happening. And so there's those flies that are more generic and might might cover more than one bug or more than one species, et cetera, et cetera. But certainly when fish are up, you know, I'm, I'm going to give them what they want. So, for example, I fish the Deschutes River a lot, and it's a stonefly river, and studies show that something upwards to 75% of the food they find in catchable-sized trout are stonefly nymphs. This is year-round. And so my buddy, Joe Kelly, fishes a stonefly nymph that he calls, or we call, big jelly. And it's just a big black thing with long, rubbery legs. And, you know, you are matching what's in the water and what those fish are feeding on. And that is matching what's happening. At the same time, when the adults are around, I have a pattern that's in the book called Too Big to Fail, and it's my version of an adult salmon fly, or tied in a different color, it could be a, a golden stonefly. And and that pattern is, uh, you know, it works really well. But here's the caveat to all of that is I don't, despite writing a book about fly patterns, I'm of the theory that the most important thing is how we fish our flies. And presentation is the most important thing. So even though I have a pattern that I fish for the the adult salmon fly, and I think it's a really good pattern, it's good because not because it looks so much exactly like a salmon fly to to you or to me. It works because I know what those, how those bugs behave, and I'm presenting it in such a way that it's going to mimic what the trout are looking for. So that's I want to put that in at the beginning because I am such a uh, advocate for our fishing technique and uh, and not just the pattern. The pattern is just part of it. Yeah, yeah, and I've heard that from many of the guests on my shows. Um, 
that kind of uh, echo what you say. Yeah, I like, and some of them have done, you know, like snorkeling and watch the fish. And those fish take in a lot of things in their mouth. <laughs> and not all of it exactly. food all the time. Yeah, but if it's right. in the zone, they're going to give it a taste. Yeah, right, yeah, you right. Got, yeah, yeah, be in the zone, right? Yeah, so um, he said, uh, closely mentioned, in contrast, one that gets it done regardless of food sources and season. So uh, do you have attractors that uh, sure sure that you know searching um, patterns that you have but. Mm-hmm. so if i mean if i'm fishing if i'm nymphing i'll just have a generic pattern so even you had listed here stephen bird's blue-winged all right. of the merger that yeah. uh, to me you've got the standard that can be fished on the swing or it can be fished with some weight on the line, and, and and it will always work. And it probably gets tied in a few different ways, but it's a soft tackle fly, and it can be in the water or one of two flies on my line at any time. And I think trout will always accept it, even though I'm saying it's a blue-winged olive. It could be a lot of little small mayflies, and it could even probably pass for a small caddis fly too. For a dry fly, farther down the list, if you see Dave Hughes's beetle bug, that has nothing to do with any beetles or anything like that. That's just a, a generic. It sort of a, started off as first a royal coachman, then a royal wolf, and then it became the beetle bug and then it, that even changed a couple times and so it doesn't look like anything but it's a good pattern to put on the water and fish will come up and eat it very similar in the same way that and there are patterns in it that aren't in this book because they might have appeared in fly tales but I'm a big fan of a of a green humpy and even though that's not as popular as some but to me, that can represent a lot of things, especially a immature grasshopper. And so I fish a green humpy as a searching pattern a lot around the edges, and I make a lot of fish move to that. Good, so, good. Okay. Let's back up, uh, rewind to uh, Bird's Blue Wing Olive Emerger. Talk mm-hmm. about that. Uh, we did have Stephen on the show. I'm trying to, I think he's come out with a new book. I'm trying to get him back on my show. Um, it's been yes. been a few years ago, but yeah, he did a lot of wet fly fishing, as I remember. And yes, um, that fly looks like it has a lot of movement. Tell us about you know the materials that make up that fly. And you know, if I was to sit down and tie that fly, I might change again and again. And I don't, and I wouldn't know if I use that wing. I'd have a two or three different types of not wing material, but the the soft tackle and it would come off of a couple different hen hackles, and or it might have some sort of more speckled. It was depending on what the size is. Sometimes I have to switch materials, but that's a uh-huh. real generic, classic wet fly. The body's going to be made out of some um, clipped off of a hare's mask, and I'm going to spin it on a um, in a dubbing loop so it's kind of leggy. And then I'm going to put a little bit more on the thorax, and then I'm going to take my wet hackle and um, wind it back, 
put the thread through it, and then he's got a little, Steve likes to put a little bit of that same thorax material in front of it, and that thorax material yeah. is probably is going to be just some hair's ear. From, I mean, not hair's ear, but the hair's mask material. Right. Yeah. It looks like a very, uh, it looks like it has a lot of movement, or would have a lot of movement in the water. Yeah. Certainly. Uh, all, yeah. You know, all of those soft tackles do. Um, I'm a huge fan of soft tackles. And there's a lot of flies in the book that are either flimp like that are influenced or European, you know, Irish or UK flies that have the same kind of style. They'll have a wing. They'll have that soft hen hackle up on the front. And, right, uh, right. Because I, yeah. How do you fish this? What's the best way to fish it that you found? You... There's two ways I'm going to fish it. Um, again, I'm going to fish it with a cast, and, and I'm going to swing it. So it's going to be under tension near the surface. And so while it's swinging, it's, it's going to sink a little bit, but it's going to swing just below the surface on a, you know, I'll say a, a tight line, but it's probably not really tight because the current's probably soft. But anyway, it's swinging downstream and it's going to lift a little bit at the end of the swing, and the fish can take it any time, or I'm going to, or maybe even on the same cast, I'm going to cast it upstream and drift it like a nymph on a drag-free, even though it's underwater, it's still a drag-free drift until it gets down below me, and then maybe I'll let it swing at that point. And right, it, right. Might also, it, it might also be the point fly with another fly above it, or it could be the top fly too, and maybe even a little tiny bit of, of weight in between them, and I'm going to still nymph with this and let it get down and try to make it drift in a natural drift without any tension on the line so that it behaves the way it's supposed to behave in the water column. Too often people who nymph get too much action because their line is getting moved around by current and as soon as that fly begins to move at a different pace than the current the game's off as far as the fish are concerned they're just they're going to ignore it right right so how did you come up on this fly was it through Stephen Bird or did it was through Stephen Bird I actually this was the very the second column that I was going to write for California Fly Fisher where I actually had the position of doing at, at the vice. I used to, I've written lots and lots of things for them prior to this. And at the same time, a buddy of mine from my area had met Steve because he was fishing up in Steve's part of the world and kept saying, oh, you got to meet this Steve Bird. He's a, he's a smart guy and knows stuff. So I you know, called him up, talked to him, planned to go fishing with him, and we got talking, and I said, well, send me, you know, send me some blue-winged olive patterns, and he sent me a half a dozen, and this was one that I particularly liked. Yeah, yeah, interesting. Yeah, I'm going to have to try those. I've tied a lot of things in soft tackles, and um planning on uh, doing more of that this year myself. Well, let's take a quick break, and... When we come back, we'll talk about that other one that you just mentioned, the beetle bug. I'd like to hear a story behind that one as well. So hang tight, everyone. We'll be 
back in just a minute. Musky Town is so much more than a musky fly shop. Whether you're a musky fly fishing guide, an experienced musky hunter, or just getting into predators on the fly, wherever life's adventures take you, Musky Town's proven lineup helps you be more successful on the water. They have rods, reels, lines, and flies for musky, pike, and bass. Most of their flies are tied in-house, and they fish them at every possible opportunity so that they know what works, why it works, and exactly what you need to put big fish in the net. Sit back, relax, and enjoy legendary fly shop service, and please let them know if there's ever anything that they can help you with. Next time you think of Muskie, go to Muskytown. That's muskytown.com, or call them at 763-312-6012. Again, muskytown.com, 763-312-6012. You're listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. We're talking with Scott Sato about the Pacific Coast flies and fly fishing. If you'd like to ask Scott a question, just go to our homepage at askaboutflyfishing.com and use that Q&A text box to send us your question. So, Scott, I always ask my guests, you know, what's going on in your fly fishing world? I know just getting this book published was a big job. So what else is happening in your world? What else is happening? Well, I um, <laughs> this time of year I spend some time on the Oregon coast looking for um, wild steelhead, and I just got back, and I did find one incredible fish, and that's pretty good for any trip to the coast. I'm going to spend some time at the fly shows, doing a little bit of promotion with the book, so I'm going to be in Denver. Oh, you are? Starting tomorrow, yes. And then the following week, I'm going to be down in Oakland or Pleasanton for the uh, for the show down there. It's not something I really do too much of, but with the book coming out and also because one of my jobs with Gray Sporting Journal is that I select some equipment every year for Gray's Best Awards, and so I have to be around and talk to people and get my hands on some stuff um, so that I can put it to the test. And so when I make those, give those Gray's Best Awards, based on not just who gave me things, but actually using the stuff and uh, right. seeing what works and what I'm comfortable giving an award to. And so right. that's, yeah. that's, another, cool. that's another reason that I, you know, do show up at some of the shows. It's not something I do too much of, but I'm, I'm doing it twice in the next month. So that takes up that time. This year, there's, you know, it's kind of in the wake of COVID, or even though it's not over, I'm still traveling, and I have some trips lined up, but I'm not saying too much about them yet. So that's just okay. what's going on. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, good, good. Yeah. Well, good. I'll have to find you in Denver. I'll be down okay, there. Okay, good. So I'll look you up. Say hi. Yeah. yeah. Good, you're, good. You're going to be yeah. at the uh, the book signing booth, I, I take it? Yes, I will be there. at the author's. I will be at the author's booth an hour each day. If you were to ask me what time, I'd have to go look for some notes, and I'm not going to do that yeah. right now. So, yeah, yeah but yeah, I'm on no the problem. list. So, yeah, Good. I'm on the list. Yeah. Good. All right. Well, let's jump back in and talking about some of these flies. Uh, that one that you had mentioned is an interesting fly, the beetle bug. Again, it looks like you said before. It's a it looks like a combination of a royal wolf, but has some some more red in it, coloring and so forth. So, uh, why don't you? talk to this. Who designed this 
this, so uh, this, this, this is Dave Hughes's beetle bug, and but it's it goes through some transitions because there was somebody, some tire in the Northwest in Portland who tied a similar bug that was called the beetle bug. Dave's father tied it, and so they kind of simplified it. And then this is sort of what Dave has settled on for his beetle bug. And so it's really his pattern. And I used it to talk about this kind of a fly, which is he calls these patterns searching drives. I might call them an attractor pattern. They go by other names. But, and why this one qualifies, he, you know, first it's a fly that floats well, and he thinks that, that that's important. It's something that you can see, so you can keep fishing it and still see it, and it has a general bugginess to it. So those are the elements of the fly that he thinks, you know, that this fly is almost an archetype for that kind of a fly. And he settled on it for fishing the kind of small streams that he likes, rough water. It's not something you would use in a spring creek probably. But um, I know here in the Columbia Gorge where I live, there's some small streams that this is the perfect, to me, the perfect fly for that kind of setting. And Or it could be someplace where I backpack into, or it could be someplace, you know, high mountain creek, but um, that's what the beetle bug is. Yeah, I, I noticed here uh, in the uh, materials listing, yeah, white calf body for the wings, so that makes it, mm-hmm. uh, like you said, easy to see. Um, body, it's a fluorescent red fur. What is that? Uh, the fluorescent red fur is a, a hairline dubbing. I think, oh, I think okay. uh, it's listed as He's actually got a number, hairline dubbing number four, or the fluorescent is number six. So it's just a color. It's just a red, okay. a red, yeah, it's just off the shelf. And okay. um, that's where, you know, you know, I would equate it to a, um, to a red humpy. And so that's just that red. And then, of course, the, uh, all the, the coachmen's, you know, the royal coachmen and that stuff. And why does that work? You got me, you know. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but those, those patterns have always been people's favorite patterns. In fact, I was recently in New Zealand fishing for some pretty tough fish, and the guy said, you know what, we're going to put on a Royal Coachman, and uh, we got this fairly difficult fish with that, And which to me, again, goes back to my thesis, is that a good cast in the right place is really what uh, – the hardest part of this game is yeah i can give you my fly and and it might not work at all for you but not because there's anything wrong with the fly so that's, oh, that's I think I've, always... I've, yeah i've i've experienced that fishing with friends and stuff where we're just you know uh not but uh you know several yards away from each other we're both using the same fly and my buddy's catching all these fish and i'm not i'm going Something, <laughs> you know, it's not the right. fly. It's certainly not the fly. Uh, yeah, right. um, yeah, I hear you. Yeah, that's an interesting one. And like, like you know, you look you look at it, and it's yeah, it's, it doesn't really look like anything. It's just buggy looking and um, mm-hmm. floating high. That's for sure. Moose hair tail, and um, 
Yeah, and like you said, the Royal, you know, did you say Royal Wolf before Royal Coachman? I said Royal Coachman, and I said Royal yeah. Wolf, too. Because oh, that's okay. where the Royal Coachman, <laughs> and then Dave Hughes, the Royal Wolf was his favorite way back when he was a youngster because the Royal Coachman was is delicate. You know, it had that, yeah. uh, the peacock hurl, you know, that tears apart, and... Yeah, it just doesn't hold up. So then the you know the wolf patterns were definitely better for choppier, rougher water. Yeah, you know, kind of you know yeah. just a hardier fly. And then you know and then he you know then he this beetle bug. I think it actually was tied by a commercial tire who used to work at one of the department stores in Portland, if you can believe that. You know that they used to have a tire at. Oh. I think it's not. You know, it's not Nordstrom's, but it's like, it's a name like that, but it's not coming to me now. But anyway, it was a downtown Portland, and they had they actually had a fly tire there. And that, oh, that's man. where that beetle bug, yeah, that's where it started. But then Dave Hughes has done some other stuff, and he's got, there's some details in the story that I yeah. can't remember yeah. at all. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I can understand. Um, well, let's talk yeah. about a, a different kind of fly, but I've had some connection to, to this one and it's called the vanilla bugger right mm-hmm. yes and yes. this is i'm familiar with this yeah from mark uh bonham and up in uh, wyoming on the rays reef the north flat up there is that where this came from that's exactly where it came from in fact i attributed to in the book i talk about that i had a friend who was in these parts he had a fly shop and he was telling me about Wyoming fishing, and I was headed that way, and so he had marked some places. And that was the first time I went out to Gray's Reef. And, and so that's where I first heard about it, and so I you know, definitely give this guy credit there at the whatever it is, in the something fork or the north something fly shop. North, and, yeah, um, north flat, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, um, and so I tied some up and had them around, and I started using them for a few different things, and specifically, I have some places where I know where it's legal to fish for bull trout, and if you know anything about bull trout, they're incredibly aggressive. They're the, you know, they're the big dog in the river you know they feed on rainbow trout they feed on salmon and steelhead smolts and they this is a perfect fly because to me it represents ideally a a small fish is what it looks like Mm -hmm. to me and fish that have moved to the stage where they're becoming piscivorous at that point in other words, big fish. <laughs> this is this yeah. to me is one that I just totally believe in. There's a several places, some tailwater fisheries. I use it. To me, it's just a great fly to swing in front of big fish that like to eat other fish. Yeah, and it's you know most of these style flies you see in darker colors and so forth, but this is all based upon a, a cream theme. You know, cream yeah. caribou cream or, or golden badger saddle hackle cream body you know antron yarn there 
and then it's got that cone head which gets it down so um mm-hmm. yeah so you think the secret is it just looks really really fishy like a bait fish of some sort and um and that's the attraction huh? yes and the other aspect though is that badger hackle has that dark center and that yeah. really shows up that really gives that so you've got all this light color swimming in the water and then you've got that sort of dark in the middle and that to me just it looks it list looks good in the water and and i think that that's part of it i wouldn't want to tie that with just cream colored hackle or just um white hackle that yeah. badger to me is, is part of the that's secret the, yeah. if there is such a thing or at least it makes <laughs> me fish it it makes me fish it with confidence and right. uh, and i've had so many good fish eat that thing and whether again i sometimes i'll drift it you know and then let it tighten up or i do cast it long and across and just swing it across and for those bull trout you can swing that just have that thing swinging but at that right when it arrives in sort of that the perfect gut spot if you just pull on it just a little bit you're oftentimes as soon as you are move it animating that fly at the same time you're animating it to say it's the same moment you're setting the hook because they just ate it and so you really have the feeling they're just right there watching it and as soon as it moves they just can't stand it (laughs) and they eat cool Yeah, yeah yeah good good well let's um i got one more and then we'll switch over to steelhead here the name of this one is my favorite terrestrial. <laughs> and, right, uh, right. That's so, it. tell us about this fly. It looks like a combination of a couple of different things uh, when I'm looking at it. So, what was it designed for? Yeah, and who designed it, was, it? I designed it. It was uh, it. There's elements of it that actually my the fly too big to fail is re- almost just an oversized version of this. Although this has does have that green, and actually, so it was actually I was someplace in Wyoming, fishing was sort of tough, but I had and I had raised some really good fish that had come up and not eaten, but had these you know spectacular rises on my favorite green humpy, and so I was thinking you know, and that humpy sits pretty high on the water, and so one of the things I believe more a lot, even on rising fish, is that if I can get the fly to sit low in the water I believe I get a lot more good solid takes because a fish is more willing to come to the surface and eat right at the surface rather than something that's sitting on top of the surface and so this fly is designed that way it's got this flat wing moose hair and that's the only part I'll grease up and so it'll sit, and of course it makes it hard to see, but you make your cast, you know where your fly is, there's your leader, it's there, <laughs> and, uh, and even if you can't really see it, you know where it is, and if a fish eats something right there, well, I would suggest you lift your rod and stick that thing, <laughs> because it yeah. probably ate that fly, even though you couldn't really see it exactly, so that greased, that low greased wing, so it was at a time when there were no hatches going on, but the fish, as is often the case, you know, they're they're looking for something, 
and terrestrials are falling in the water. It was later, whether it can be a beetle or a hopper or, or an ant, they were looking at that's how we were getting good fish. And so this doesn't, it's a generic attractor pattern that I call a terrestrial because I fish it in those situations. Right. The elements that I like, it's the green. I like the green that's in through the body and up through the hackle. Um, peacock. It's got yeah, the peacock. Enough, yeah. yeah, the peacock. And it's got enough hackle to float it, but it's, and then it has that greased wing and out of moose hair, and the tail is also some moose hair, too, to keep it upright at the, keep it in the surface film. And I fish it just like a dry fly, you know, an upstream cast and float it on a natural drift, and um, I get a lot of good fish on that fly. Yeah, Especially it reminds me... Uh, the... Go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, I was uh, only going to say, especially when I've, you know, maybe had some real good rises to more of a, of a higher-sitting fly, like a humpy, and where it's moved a fish, but he just didn't eat. And I'm generally of the opinion that fish don't miss flies <laughs> when they when you make them come up and they do something and you see it he or she refused it is why you didn't connect and so and then they oftentimes that refusal is in the last instant they just turn away but they still leave something happens on the surface and you go oh my god that was you know he missed it well no he didn't want it, and so you know, and so yeah. he didn't want it. He just didn't, you know, he didn't eat it, and so then it's okay. Maybe if I set down lower in the water, he doesn't have to. He's not afraid of the thing flying off. He can rise with more confidence and just take it down with confidence rather than kind of have to chase it uh, at yeah. that last yeah. moment. Well, just to kind of describe to people what this fly looks like, um, you know, it reminds me of a stimulator, similar kind of, mm-hmm. uh, you know, yes. style. Yes. Uh, the big, big thing that's different is that peacock body, peacock curl mm-hmm. body, and uh, yes. then you've got that palmer, and then the other big difference is the big, the moose, you know, the moose tail and the moose wing. And, yeah, I can see how that will just sit in the water real nicely, but right. still stay, stay afloat for a long time. Yeah. And the the other thing it has, too, is, you know, and how much does it matter, but it, it carries on that green with the, because it's tied with um, it's tied with green thread and um, oh, yeah. Pearsall silk. And so just like on a traditional soft hackle, the forward hackle is wound backwards, you know, starting from the front and wound right. back. And then the green goes through the hackle up to the eye of the hook. So that color... That green is up there in the front too, and right, of course it's right. secured. It's plus it secures the hackle too, so that it, you know you don't get just one fish and the thing comes apart. It comes um, apart. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's a traditional soft hackle way to make, to secure that front hackle and to get some color through the hackle, which at least appeals to me. <laughs> you know, right. Because yeah, there's, yeah. There's some nice contrast going on through the front but on the other yeah, hand it is. This is, you know it, it's a completely impressionistic fly it's not yeah. i'm not saying that's i'm not it's just that's what it is and i'm fishing it 
in a time when I think there's stuff that can fall, terrestrials falling on the water and the right. fish are looking for those things. Yeah, um, yeah, it's kind of like, yeah. you know, the Chernobyls, right? What does the Chernobyl look right. like? <laughs> no, exactly, <laughs> you know, I mean, exactly. I have, so, to say, yeah. I have to say, I was just in, you know, and I, and I don't want to drop any names or anything, but I was just, I got a trip, I was spent some time in New Zealand, and those fish, you know, there's no food in the water, is what it seems like. Those fish, and you just huh. see one fish, and there he is. And that fish is just looking for something that's in the water. And, you know, it was not about your pattern. It was just put a fly, a dry fly, right in the right spot, get the right drift, and those fish just would eat. And it was so remarkable to me because they just had their eyes looking up for something that had landed in the water, and they would just eat it with confidence, and yeah. which is really yeah. about, as much, about as much fun as you can have. So Yeah. Yeah, I, friends of mine, I don't know if you know them, uh, Terry and Wendy Gunn. I don't know if you know them. but No, um, I don't know them. Yeah, they owned and are still part ownership of a guiding service and lodge and so forth down on uh, uh, Colorado River at Lee's Ferry. And um, mm-hmm. okay. they just left for a, a month to go to New Zealand. And <laughs> they got there, and the next day a typhoon, hurricane hit the island, oh, massive yeah. things. And then a couple of days later, an earthquake happened down there. Mm, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. So, you know, it's like they, they retired, and it's like a dream trip, and all they've had is bad weather oh, oh. disasters happening. So I, I'm glad they're down there for like a month because hopefully everything will straighten out and they can right. get some good fishing. In. But, yeah, yeah, I haven't been there. It sounds like a wonderful place to fish, but quite different than any other place in the world. Very, very heard. different. I mean, Compared to what we're used to here in terms of hatches and things, none of that. No. Um, Not a lot of fish, you know, in the water. You just went after one fish at a time. And the beautiful thing was you could get them. Yeah. That's what was interesting. But, yeah, yeah, very interesting. Well, hang tight. We're going to take another quick break. But when we come back, we're going to dig into some of the uh, steelhead patterns. And then after that, some of the saltwater patterns. So um, we'll be answering your questions, too. Have any questions, send them in, and we'll see if we can get them answered. Enrico Puglisi flies pride themselves with creating unique and one-of-a-kind flies and fly-tying materials. Enrico has been experimenting with durable synthetic and natural materials to create flies that catch fish for more than 20 years. His innovative products include brushes, fibers, and components that have made a major impact on the direction of saltwater fly fishing, and his methods and materials are respected worldwide. Whether you want your flies hand-tied for you or you'd like to tie your own, be sure to visit Enrico Puglisi Flies and browse through their online catalog. Visit epflies.com, that's epflies.com, and do a little shopping today. You're listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. We're talking with Scott about the Pacific Coast flies and fly fishing. So if you'd like to ask Scott a question, send it in using that form on our homepage, and we'll try to get your question answered for you tonight. So we did have, let's see, I think the questions that came in were about salt. So we'll hold that. Yeah, let me just double check this here. Yeah, uh, okay. 
And yeah, okay, so the, these other two questions just came in are having to do with the salt. We'll hold those off till we get to that area. Okay, so steelhead, northwest coast, Washington, Oregon, California, big steelhead uh, country. Um, and uh, okay, so I have to ask you, you just landed one. What did you catch it on? I know it was I the caught, presentation, but what it was a fly. <laughs> no, no, I caught that, and this is what I oftentimes do in the middle of winter: is that I fish with a egg pattern. Really? Yeah. Yes, because I'm fishing in some very small water, and and I'll just those. Coastal steelhead seem to be very keyed in to the salmon that have, you know, just finished spawning, and they come up those rivers. So that seems to be the most. Uh, I, I could have told you something else because I had another fish just before that on another fly, but the truth is I'll fish a lot of egg patterns in the middle of winter on the coast. Okay, good. And, good. Well, uh, thanks for sharing that. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. So one we have here that I picked out was the green butt muddler. So very unusual looking fly. Just tell us about it and why it works. Yeah. Well, that it's it comes out of a tradition, and I've messed with uh, muddlers that all really came out of the work and the writing that Bill McMillan did in the late 60s, 70s, into the 80s, when he advocated the use of floating line and surface patterns for summer steelhead. And he was a believer of that and said you could move just as many fish that way when everybody else, at that time, most steelheaders were believing that you need to have some kind of fly that got down deep, and that's how you caught more fish. I was captivated by his ideas and his thinking, and it didn't originate with him either. Um, Haig Brown wrote about that, and, of course, Atlantic salmon fishers have also used surface patterns a lot. And Millen had a steelhead caddis, and a lot of different colors, but the fundamental part was this sort of sparse muddler head, and which this green button muddler has. And he had a wing, but I, over time, thought I didn't really, I, I ended up with these very, very sparse, tied on a light wire hook, floss, and uh, maybe a little rib, tinsel rib, and then this this muddler head. And I've had remarkable success at certain times and moved lots and lots of fish and caught lots and lots of steelhead fishing this way. Floating line, long leader, swinging the fly, it's on the surface. It's not on the surface, it's right in the surface, but it's enough that it's going to leave a wake as it's swinging. And that telltale wake is what comes from that muddler head. And this is 
so that's what this fly, that's the design of this fly. This one incorporates a few other things. It's got the green butt, which is, you know, the most famous fly is the green butt skunk in steel heading. And then I'm just a fan of peacock curl, so I've got that on the front half. But so those are all the elements. But the most important element is that um, sparse muddler head with those trailing features behind it and that makes it a it's almost a mechanical device that you're swinging that nothing else swims quite like this and the takes are really about as good as exciting anything about you can get. <laughs> yeah exactly I bet. exactly I bet. and, and yeah. it's exciting and the fit and you see things that you would never see because it all happens the way the fish takes it can sometimes be very gentle sometimes they just put their mouth on it sometimes they really go for it it's all these different things and it, it really is yeah it's really exciting and it's the best money can buy right <laughs> in terms of catching steelhead when it works it's amazing how many flies that are really successful flies use peacock in them somewhere. That is just like mm -hmm. the magic material, isn't it? I mean, it's the... It, it, you know, I think it's got... It's good because it has so much reflective property. You know, we didn't talk about... You had a, on your list here, you had the mailman. And yeah, that's, that's yeah. A, uh, that, that's a trout fly. But what was important about that chapter is that it... It was me writing in response to the notion that everybody all of a sudden said we needed to have UV re reflective materials, uh, UV yeah, impregnated, yeah. right? And at the end of that, we got to the fact that that's exactly what peacock hurl is, is that it's, it has those Natural. UV, naturally it has those qualities. And so... You know, it is a material that's magical, and if you were to go through this book, um, the reason I don't use it in the salt water much is because your fish will just chew it up yeah. and spit yeah. it out. You yeah. know, it wouldn't last very long. And but in my caddisflies, in my in my mayfly, in my you know, I love the stuff, and I think most seasoned anglers have a an affinity for it too. Have you um, have you experimented at all with any of the synthetic uh, peacock dubbing? I know there's like five or six of them out there. I'm just wondering. No, I haven't. There was the Semper that company, Semper Fi. UK company. Yeah. Yes, they had something that I was interested in. I never haven't got my hands on it. So what I, you know, the tricks that I know is that I I spin it on a dubbing loop with some kind of thread in it or even on a piece of wire, a copper wire, to, for the durability factor. Right, right. And that works, that works well. Yeah. And there's, okay. a lot of, there's a lot of peacocks around, so I don't feel like I'm, I don't feel like yeah. I'm doing anything bad by taking peacock you know, feathers. No, but, and I don't know what the status is now, but it was on uh, the CITES list. Oh, Somehow, really? over in India... I don't know what they were doing over there, but somehow they got peak up on the CITES list, so it was sure. really hard to import and get into the country. So, um, I see. Yeah, okay. that, yeah, 
So that's why I was kind of, at the, this was oh, a year or two ago maybe, I haven't looked at it since then, but I kind of got my interest, well, what's the synthetic alternative? Because, you know, mm-hmm. this could happen at any time with a lot of the materials we use. You just right. don't know. Certainly. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah, there are a lot of them around, but they get, they were, um, you know, they were shipping like live peacocks throughout the world and stuff. It was a, a big thing in like Saudi Arabia on, on their, you know, palaces. Mm. They mm. would have peacocks walking around the grounds kind of as showpieces. Right, right. So um, there it was uh, shipping these things in cages and stuff. So, yeah, it's there's a lot going on in the world. <laughs> you're right, you're right. A lot of stuff Absolutely. we don't know about, you know. What about Absolutely. the what about, what about the the miracle fly? That one kind of definitely caught my eye, <laughs> and uh, you know yeah. why, right? Yeah. Well, you know the it's like many of these essays or flies, they're an example of something that's in the essay, and the the notion in the essay is that we're all looking for a miracle fly, and and this is one that you know actually. A buddy of mine who designed, I think, Jeff Cottrell, and he's got lots of lots of steelhead, and it's had its day, but I would contend that was because he was in the right place at the right time, and this was the fly he was fishing. And I think <laughs> it's a really good. I think it's a really good fly. It's got a lot of elements, you know, a lot of movement, great great tackles, got the. You know the wiggly tails, which he's he's had some success with, and so it's got a lot of good elements. But like so many steelhead flies, you know it's you catch them on the one you fish, <laughs> and yeah. Um, yeah. and the one you the one you believe in, and you know nobody if they really think there's a steelhead in there is going to tie on an experiment. <laughs> you know they're going to tie on one that they believe in because yeah. It's worked in the past. And so that's the whole notion of the miracle fly is, is a little bit in jest and a little bit tongue-in-cheek because, but in fact, you know, this fly did, you know, catch a whole bunch of fish one day. I, I always used to, I've mentioned many times in writing, there was a fly called, uh, nobody's heard of it. It was in just one of these books that has, you know, a thousand patterns, that kind of thing. It was, you know, it was called the herniator because, of <laughs> course, the guy used it one day and he caught so many steelhead that he had to go to the hospital, right? <laughs> so that's, oh, the name of the, <laughs> that's the name of the fly. And, you know, and it's the same kind of thing, you know. I mean, that wasn't yeah. the fly that did that. That was just, you know, he was there when there was a lot of fish in the water and, and they ate. Yeah. So, so that's the miracle fly, and it's, and and it's you know it's got all kinds of elements that you know that we've seen it's uh, in other steelhead patterns. Like I said, the color, the the, the almost the spay hackle, the the rubbery this and that, and that's what that fly is. That's the story behind that fly. And uh, yeah. you know, Jeff showed it to me, and and he had you know he had just had a day where the fish were all over it. And, uh, but that doesn't mean that the next day it worked as well. Yeah. The, um, I'll just read off some of the materials for people because it's kind of hard to describe, but, uh, you mm-hmm. know, you've got flat silver tinsel, you've got pink pearl, uh, silly legs, 
green crystal flash, oval uh, silver tinsel, purple schlappen, purple ice tub. I mean, it's, it's, there's a lot of, lot of flash going on there. That's for sure. Right. And, exactly. And what, exactly. You know, and, but, you know, when you talk about steelhead flies, and it sounds like you've done a lot of steelheading, um, and what you just said, a lot of the steelhead flies don't look like anything. They're just flashy patterns that, you know, they're not realistic. Like a lot of the saltwater patterns seem to be more realistic, you know. They're, they're, Absolutely. They're, mm-hmm. they're more bait fish oriented. But I don't see a lot of these steelhead flies, you know, looking like bait fish. They all no, seem to be attractors. Am I, am I off base there? Or? No, you're, you're absolutely true. Um, Bill McMillan pointed out when he, you know, because he recorded every fish he ever caught. He was a real researcher, the temperature he'd catch him in. And so what his part of his, what he discovered was once the temperature gets above a certain point, which is about 48 or 50 degrees, then steelhead become much more active and more surface oriented. When it's cold, they do, they're sort of, they don't move around as much. And that's the time that you need to fish down to them. But all the fishing he did on the surface, he would still return again and again that he caught lots more fish than he really, than he, he was almost, it bothered him that how effective was a big black stone nymph or my buddy Joe Kelly because the stone flies are in the water and when those fish they'll always eat that stone fly if you get it in front of them yeah the bait fish like a nymph you know fish down deep when the Californians first brought the it's like called an ugly bug but it's like that but it's a big black nymph but that's not quite what it's called when they brought that to the North Umpqua they just rocked fish and to the point that they outlawed it because they were oh, really it was so, so effective and they wanted you know everybody to still fish you know surface flies and so that's what steelhead will eat is you know the big black stone nymph what's when they're fishing when they're eating these things that are swinging on the surface i think they're just reacting to you know because they're curious and they eat and so they put their mouth on it. They don't have hands. The muddler is fished at the time of the year when there's the great big October caddis and, and grasshoppers. And so Bill McMillan called his a steelhead caddis. And, mm, you know, maybe there's some truth to that. There probably is quite a bit of truth to it. But, you know, to me, when I fish it, I'm, it's just um, it's something on the surface that's that's leaving that wake, they eat it out of curiosity. It, it oftentimes seems to me. That's, that's is, really um, what, what's good. Yeah. The other fly that I'd selected here, wakers, is that another surface fly? That... So that talks about this whole idea. And so this is traditional. So the, the miracle fly and the waker, those are traditional swinging flies, very traditional style of what we, you know, call a steelhead fly. And you could take the miracle fly and put a half hitch around the head or a Portland hitch. It comes out of the um, the Atlantic salmon fishing. So you, you, after you've tied your, are you familiar with that 
idea? Or should I? Have I think I've it? seen it. Yeah, I have not. Yeah. So yeah. instead of your, you've tied your fly to the um, your line, your tippet to the um, eye of the hook, and then you take a half hitch behind the eye of the fly. And so the line comes off at an angle. So then when your fly is swinging, it rides near the surface and it wakes. And hmm. this is how the muddler works. And so that, any of these sort of standard wet flies that are not tied on a great big heavy hook, and if you still fish them with a, a floating line, once the, they're under tension, They'll get they'll be near the surface and with that Portland hitch or riffle hitch they call it, then that'll make it actually leave a wake behind it. And that alone seems to be something that stimulates steelhead to investigate the fly and perhaps eat it. And the good thing about when you're fishing that way, even if the fish doesn't eat because he's a big animal, he'll oftentimes reveal himself by, you know, there'll be kind of a movement in the water, and you'll say, that was just a fish. And so now you've located the fish, and now you might try something else. But having seen the fish move to the fly, you know, you've located him. And right, that can right. Be, that, that can be really big in steelheading because now you can bear down on, on that fish. Yeah, this waker, the difference between it and the miracle fly is that uh, the waker has much more natural colors to it, not that loud, yes. flashy. Um, exactly. Kind of, this is um, got what, black, I'm looking at body, black seal fur, yeah, for the body. Mm -hmm. you got browns mm -hmm. in there, you got tans, you got kind of uh, the the, uh, the collar is ringneck pheasant tail, so got some speckling there but yeah this looks this looks very buggy to me you know and not yes, as an yes. attractor so much yeah right yeah. and it's it's a more you know so you might you might i mean steelheaders have all kinds of ideas but you know bright flies on a bright day is how is the and dark flies on a dark day or dark right. time of day and that's a real standard um, equation or theory and so this yeah this is definitely even though it has the white wing it's more natural and so right. maybe if you're if you threw that miracle fly and you move the fish you might back up and say okay I'm going to come in it with a more subtle pattern and maybe I can uh -huh. get him to eat that and so that that's a real traditional you know move that steelheaders might make um, right right cool yeah yeah, yeah. Well, we're, we're getting short on time, so I better move on to saltwater here. We want to get those in, and we do have a few questions. Um, let me start out with some of these questions. Uh, DB in uh, Bozeman, Montana, uh, writes in, I made a trip to Washington State specifically for saltwater fly fishing from shore. It's not complicated when pursuing salmon species, but when we looked into pursuing rockfish or other nearshore species, we found the myriad uh, regulations and extensive reaches of shoreline impacted, at least in the Seattle area, to be not only bewildering but quite discouraging. We also found limited help, at least at the one local fly shop in Seattle. Is this the kind of situation one can expect to encounter up and down the entire Pacific coast? 
And how does one deal with it in places where the regs are so restrictive? We ended up giving up on going for rockfish that trip, but I'd hate to think we're out of luck uh, going after shallow water fish all along the coast. So does any of that sound familiar, or can you talk to that at all? Uh, yes, I can. I can. There are a lot of, in the Seattle area, there are a lot of restrictions, and actually up and down the coast, in where they've created reserves for fish that had been sort of areas that had been fished out. Most of the fishing that you do in the surf or from a beach has to do with not rockfish, although you could be on a jetty or something like that. And so, yes, there are a lot of regulations, but I think that's more of a, a Seattle area sort of thing. They still have good, they have good sea-run cutthroat fishing in that area, but the restrictions for those resident kind of, yeah, rockfish I know are, are pretty tight because they've had real, you know, population troubles. Oh, okay. They've been, over, they've been overfished. Yeah. yeah, so they've gotten real restrictive. Where, and there's areas now, in, in California too, that, you know, they simply, marine reserves are what they're calling them, that you just simply can't fish anymore in places that we used to be able to get fish, you know. Um, yeah. So there, there well, is. It's changed a lot. I went to school in Santa Barbara, and, um, mm -hmm. you know, we used to go out diving and getting uh, scallops and uh, abalone and, Sure. Uh, you know, from what I hear now, abalone are, you know, you, you can't take them, no. you know, even as a sport uh, diver, you know, anymore. So a lot of things have changed. Yeah. We got another one in here that says, last November I was in San Francisco for about 20 days while my son underwent surgery. I visited a local fly shop to get flies and ideas about where and how to fish for surf perch. I had an eight weight with a sinking line and using the, their recommended flies, I hit the beach south of the city several times. The surf was high, but I was able to cast into the troughs behind the waves. I netted a big zero. <laughs> no bites at all, but I am hooked. I wanted to go back and try it again. What did I do wrong? Are surf perch and stripers available in north north of San Francisco? Yes, the answer is yes. I, although the striper fishing now seems, that I know of, seems to be more south of the city, down, you know, into... Um, the Santa Cruz area, when he talks about the big surf, um, that's the biggest challenge in um, surf fishing, in saltwater, you know, fly fishing, is if there's very much surf, it can be your fly isn't really getting in front of fish very easily. He, obviously, this person knows something about getting into the troughs behind the waves, but if the waves feel like they're big, even though you're sort of landing out there, your fly doesn't spend very much time where the fish are. The other big thing, of course, is finding where the fish are. Fish where the fish are, as the man says, but that it can be really difficult and takes experience because mostly they're not there. And um, I have a lot of experience we were serious fishermen, serious surfers, and, you know, there's certain places that the fish do gather on certain tides. You can be at the exact same place, and if it's not the right tide, they're not there. And so between the tide and the surf 
and then you know exactly what is the riptide or the the hole where they gather that's hard earned knowledge local knowledge and right, um, right. and you know he's doing the right thing is by going fishing and that is but it's uh, I pay to get a guide to, right <laughs> yeah well that but even then you know can you find a guy who can who really knows that stuff you know that yeah. it's there're not a lot of them around because it's it's tough fishing it can be tough yeah. getting the guide or but just having the guide i mean if the surf's big the guide's not going to be able to do anything you know he's going to yeah. say well you know this is you know although he might have a he'd have a list of places that he could take you to when, right. when uh, if it's big here like we'll go over here so yeah a guide yeah. certainly could help so but it's a in, in the San Francisco area, you know, he doesn't say what time of year he was at. Right, that's right. A big part, that's a big part of surf fishing. I know some guys, I do know guys who still get, you know, who get stripers. They're, you know, they're not around like they used to be in the old days when they were thick in the actual bay and in the delta. They are in the delta, but on the in the surf, that's, I know guys who cast plugs because they can throw them a mile. And I know guys who get stripers all the way down to Ventura. Oh. There are there are all the way down. There are stripers, but not a lot of them. And that's some harder knowledge there. Yeah, that a question came in from Phil McCartney on the internet here, and he was asking about striped bass along the Pacific Coast as well. He wanted to know if you needed a boat to fish for them, or you could fish from them from shore. So it sounds like you can fish from for sure, but uh, uh, harder to do. Yes, yes, definitely. Yeah. In that, you know, in the surf, there stripers do show up. They corral bait and push them up against the beach, um, especially if you have bigger numbers of them, like on the East Coast. The probably now the biggest striper fishery is in the Delta, you know, where the Sacramento and the San Joaquin rivers you know move around and then channeled and this that and the other and that's definitely a boat fishery yeah yeah well that's we're running out of time and i want to talk about some of these uh, saltwater flies but uh kind of what you were talking about reminded me i did a show um with al quattrochi and uh mm-hmm. talking about corbina and right. we went into great detail about surf fishing for them and you know, without getting into the weeds, just listen to the show, folks, if you want to hear some, you know, an expert talk about surf fishing, because it's everything that you just said, Scott, time of year, <laughs> what is this, you know, is the tide in or out, is it moving, all these things, you know, and I, I hear Corbina very hard to catch for, mm-hmm. for all the reasons that, that you said as well, just in surf fishing. So, and they're not there all the time. <laughs> it's like your buddy says, hey, they're in. Yeah, everybody runs down, <laughs> you know. So, yeah. So, anyway, um, yeah, a couple I picked out here. One that was really crazy looking. We're talking about saltwater flies here for surf fishing and so forth. Is a, a trilobite. Mm-hmm. Talk so to the me trilobite, about the trilobite. Yeah, yeah. The trilobite is, was designed by... The guy who pioneered with me a lot of the saltwater fly fishing on the, in the Southern California and Baja coast, and, oh. and that led to my first book, which is called Angling Baja, which talks basically about 
us going from being just surfers who used to take fishing rods along to go cast bait out into the ocean and get some things until we eventually got real serious about um, fishing in the surf with flies. And there was a few people that had done it before, you know, us back. There was, you know, there had been a, a history of some people, but um, not a lot. And we certainly didn't know anybody. And this friend of mine, his name is Peter Saika. And so I, I asked him, because I'm up here in the Northwest now, and I do still spend a lot of time in Baja, which is where I do a lot of my surf fishing, what Peter's most recent, you know, what's his, what's he, when he's going to go fish for surf perch or anything, but surf perch can oftentimes be the first thing you'll catch in the surf, what's he tying? And so the trilobite was his, is, is his pattern, and it just combines some elements for what's oftentimes necessary in the surf. One, you need a fly that gets down real quickly. So it's got the it's got a weighted um, it's got the dumbbell eyes, it's got the rubbery legs, which seems to be something that you know attracts attention, you know, because you're oftentimes fishing where it is roiled up and you know there's waves breaking and it's sudsy and those fish are right there in the surf zone, and so you've got to get down, you've got to they're digging around, they you know they're using the surf that's kicking up crabs and clams and all kinds of stuff and they're in there you know moving with the surf and so you got to get something that gets in there quickly gets down quickly has enough movement and then and you can cast it and then the color the red color seems to always be good also for to be able for visibility and it's kind of like another angler who I've spent a lot of time with Gary Bulla He's yeah. probably been on your show. Yeah, um, he has. Yeah, he, Magdalena he, Bay. He had a, yeah. Yes, he had a fly yeah. called the the Grimmy that had the same red color, and it was about this size too. So this is Peter's take on sort of a a good all around surf fly, and specifically if you're just trying to catch something in the surf, and um, this would be a pattern that you know I'd put on my fly on my line anytime there was some surf around and you know does it look like a, a crab does it look like a crustacean does it look like a you know anyway it gets to be a shrimp kind of a, yeah yeah yes yeah, yeah exactly yeah exactly yeah yeah interesting yeah very colorful and those big eyes you know those got to be a mm -hmm. attractor as well sure i think uh, fish are attracted to eyes you know it means something living i think that uh, draws them in yeah that's that's an interesting fly the other one was uh, in here you were just talking about, um, yeah, and it, it is from Gary Bulla, the Bullador. Now, that, yeah. see, that's to me a fishy, that that looks like a, a sardine or something. Right, uh, right. Yeah. When, when we were talking about the steelhead flies, you know, and then saltwater flies being very, very fishy looking, and, and that one sure does. But, yeah, talk about that one. Well, the Bullador actually, so it's, you know, it's named after Gary, and and it was a pattern, very traditional, although um, a lot of the captains don't like blue. They, they like um, tan they and olive colors. And But only when the 
flying fish are around? Do they like the blue? And and so this was a time when there were flying fish around and the tuna were around and it's sort of, uh, anyway, it's sort of a bastardized Spanish of, you know, to volar is to fly and so that volador or some is a, is a flying fish. You might have that a little bit wrong. Anyway, so it became the volador and it was just different because, yeah, it would have the blue in it. And yeah. um, and the Baja guides, the Baja captains, they're they're usually not blue oriented. I've had a lot of success on deep water fishing on the Pacific side with this same fly. When when I'm out there with maybe some guys who have are using bait or something like this, and I just sort of fling this out there and let it drift off, and I've had some big fish take it. And I think it is. I think it does. It does a good job of looking like a flying, the flying fish. Uh, well, it's got the white blue. belly and then the, the variegated blue backing, you know, building up. And what I really like is that, um, see, what is it? The, oh, silver doctor blue guinea feathers for the gills. You know, that's that, mm-hmm. that speckled kind of, I think that looks really cool. I don't know if it, <laughs> it's, uh, uh, yeah, if that's part of the attraction, but it, it looks cool to a human anyway. <laughs> so, yeah. So you'll, yeah, well, that's, it's got to sell you. It's not going to get you. Yeah, right. It's, you know, several of these patterns all come out of a style, of a bait fish style. And with the light belly, however you want to do that, the light underside, then at the mid right. midline, you've got something dark, and then, and then it, you know, sort of trans, the colors transition up to the back. And so that's a pretty standard, that's a standard bait fish, of course, with the eyes and, you know, that are epoxied on. And rarely do I find the fish, you know, super specific on, on yeah. any of those. I fish a tan, you know, I, so I, I fish a, an olive a lot, or I fish this with the blue, but I'd have to say tan and olive. The thing that, might be different in this book and these patterns that fishing with those captains in Baja who see a lot of flies and see a lot of fish um, refuse flies, they're not, these flies are pretty sedate. They're not a lot of flash in them. And I think that many people who come to the saltwater and specifically to Baja, their flies are too, they've got too much bling on them and um and i don't think that's i think that's but that's their they've been sold that idea or they believe that idea just because they read something but i i've seen the captains just look at it and they just say no 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 this one right there it's just got the tan on the top and the white on the bottom it's the right size that's of course important and you know get rid of all that flash stuff yeah, yeah. So, well, the, they know. They see that every day. They know what's going on. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. One more. Let's do one more, and then because I'm running late, but uh, I want to cover one more, the squid me, because yeah, that's so a bit this, different. Than the, yeah. Go ahead. Yes, uh-huh. So that's going ahead and trying to be looking like a squid, and actually it was a, uh, a buddy of mine, Fred Trujillo, who's a professional tire and ties lots of flies, 
and he used to fish this fly in off the rocks um, in a kayak on the Oregon coast. So it's it's that you know it's it's a good fly for dropping down and getting around uh, structure and where there's that kind of thing that could be in the water. It's a pretty simple, it's not trying to be super realistic, but it's got enough elements that make it look make it look like a squid or that kind of thing in the water. Yeah. I use it in Mag Bay. It's a good fly there because they've got lots of those, you know, that kind of thing, squid and shrimp and those kinds of things. But it was originally designed as kind of a rockfish fly with a trailing hook oh. and sort of that funny with the um, with the eyes back from the um, the eye of the, the hook. Yeah. 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 Yeah, and you're using uh, yeah, white white saddle hackle tail, white synthetic yak hair for the topping, fluorescent mm-hmm. fluorescent shrimp pink isoboo, pink Still flash. So it's got some flash in there, but yeah, I mean, you can look at it. It looks, you know, it looks squiddy to me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Whatever squiddy yeah. looks like. <laughs> but, yeah, I um, mean, yeah, that, that. Yeah. So anyway, it's just another that another kind of another look. Really, for me, how many patterns do you need in, in the salt? You know, I oftentimes say, well, you need a your sardine pattern. You want something that looks like a a squid or or a shrimp kind of thing, and then what else, you know, a red crab or something yeah. like that, you know, it's, it's, yeah. uh, and, and that's specifically in Baja, not if we're going for bonefish or something like that, but even though right, there are right. bonefish, there, there are yeah. bonefish in, in Baja, but anyway. Yeah, yeah that's, good, that's good to end it on, yeah, the, uh, the squid me, <laughs> okay, so yeah. let's just, uh, yeah, i got to finish it up here, stick with me, Scott, uh, we're going to give away a few prizes here, including your book. So give me a few more minutes here. Uh, we're going to be giving away Five Fishers International, a one-year membership to that, and one-year membership to uh, Trout Unlimited, and your book, Pacific Coast Flies and Fly Fishing, that we've been referencing all night. Great book, a lot of, lot of great patterns in there. And you know what? Uh, you know, the West Coast there, from Baja up to Washington, offers, you know, some just incredibly different fishing. You know what I mean? I mean, you can be fishing for rockfish. You can be fishing for mako sharks. You can, I mean, you know, from one end to the other. And I think that's what makes that whole coastline so interesting. But, uh, yeah. Um, just a quick reminder to everyone, before you leave our website tonight, please take a minute and give us your feedback about the show. You can find a link on our homepage in the section under tonight's show that says, what do you think of the show? Just click on that. and We'd really appreciate it. So let's give away some of these prizes. The winnings for the drawings are just randomly selected from our show's registration database. If you register for tonight's show, it's too late now, but make sure you do it for the next show so that you have a chance to win some of these great prizes. If you are the lucky winner, we'll contact you after the show to provide you with information on how to receive your prize. So first thing we're giving away is a one-year membership to Fly Fishers International. And to learn more about FFI, go to flyfishersinternational.org, flyfishersinternational.org. Great organization to be part of and support, so check them out. And let's see here. Our winner for that database firing up here, it looks like it's going to be um, Alan Coop from New Jersey, other side of uh, (laughs) the country. 
the U.S. Uh, and New Jersey, Alan Coop. So congratulations, Alan. You are now a, we can get you set up to be a member of Fly Fishers International. So, and congratulations. And our second winner is, and this is for the one-year membership to Trout Unlimited, is Lauren Leong. Leong, uh, Lauren Leong. So congratulations, Lauren. And get you set up as well with that uh, one-year membership to Trout Unlimited. Okay. So now to give away Scott's book, Pacific Coast Flies and Fly Fishing, courtesy of Stackpole, uh, who's been providing us books to give away for, well, since 2006. So we've had a very good relationship with Stackpole. Great publisher for the fly fishing world. Okay, so we talked about a lot of materials tonight. There was one material that stood out to me in a lot of different areas. What was that material? One material. I'm not going to give you any more hints because it should pretty much stand out in your mind. So, uh, Scott, let's see. It takes a minute for them to hear us because there's a slight delay in the transmission. But uh, I think there's there's that one thing that stood out to me. Let's see if they get it. Usually I give a little bit better hint, but I think this should be um, something that they can come up with. So I'm just refreshing here, waiting for some answers to get from people, and, well, where are you? Where is everybody? <laughs> oh, looks like uh, we may have a winner here. Uh, and what, what do you think I was referring to, Scott? I think you were referring to that wonderful product called Peacock Hurl. You are you are correct. And uh, so our first person that came in got it right, Bob Younger in Indianapolis. And uh, so, Bob, congratulations. And, yeah, we got other ones after that. Andy Cordova got it right. Phil McCartney got it right after that. And there's a few more after that. But, uh, yeah, uh, so Bob Younger, congratulations. We're going to get your book sent out. Uh, Bob, if you'll do me a favor, put in your shipping address in the same form that you answered the question in. Give me your shipping address. I've got your name. I've got your email address. I just need that, and then we'll get a book sent out uh, directly from Stackpole to you. So congrats on that. I know you'll enjoy it. You've got some trout stuff in here. You've got some salt. You've got some steelhead, so it'll keep you busy time for a while. So, All right. Well, Scott, thank you so much for being on the show tonight. It's been a blast and talking about all these flies and so forth, and uh, Thanks so much for being with us. All right. Thank you for having me. Well, hopefully uh, everybody's found our podcast archive on our website. If you haven't, just look for the link on the top-line menu. In the archive, you'll find all of our past shows, over 360-some. I can't remember what it is now. You can search by keyword, keyword phrase, like trout, tarpon, Madison River, you know, surf fishing, all those kinds of things. And uh, I think you'll be pleasantly surprised at what you find out there. Quite the education we've created for folks in Ask About Fly Fishing. Our next broadcast will be on March 1st, 7 p.m. Mountain, 9 p.m. Eastern Time. And on that show, I'll interview Robert Streeter and our topic for the show, fly fishing. Rob has a great love for fly fishing and its history, and he has collected and assembled the life stories of some of the great fly fishers that fished that Adirondack Mountains, including Ray Bergman, Lee Wolf, Perry Ellers, and others. So join us and learn about the history of fly fishing in the Adirondacks 
and the people who fished its esteemed waters. Be sure to add this to your up, uh, this upcoming show to your calendar. Right under uh, Rob's picture on our homepage, it says Add to Calendar button. Click on that, add it to your favorite calendar, and you'll be all set. We'd also like to thank Fly Fishers International, Trout Unlimited, Stackpole Books, Muskie Town, Gills Fly Fishing International for sponsoring our show tonight. And don't forget to visit our website at askaboutflyfishing.com and make sure you're signed up to receive our announcements so you won't miss out on any of our future broadcasts. Thanks for listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. We hope you enjoyed the show. That's it. Good night, everyone, and good fishing. What?